Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone. I hope you're having a great day. There's so much awesome coming your way on the podcast today. First off, today's guest, Kristen Ryman, is one of my favorite people on the planet and one of my longest known guests because I met her in 1990. I think at my first day of swim practice at Yale or at some meeting right before the first day of swim practice. But before we get to Kristen, who's so amazing, I have a special announcement to make with a friend from a podcast past, Jill Angie. All right, here we go. Hey, everyone. Nicole DeBoom here. And Jill Angie, too. And we are doing a fun little podcast pop in on each other's episodes today to talk about the results of the giveaway that we announced, gosh, at least like a month or two ago. Yeah, you guys probably episode. They probably thought we had totally forgotten and we were blowing it off. (laughs) They probably did, but we don't forget anything. No, we're legit. (laughs) We are. So what we did was we actually recorded dual episodes on each other's podcasts. So we had like this one massive long recording and we could have talked for like three more hours, I know, because you're amazing. And you're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) We're really here to boost each other's egos. (laughs) That's the only reason. (laughs) And um, we asked you guys to, after you listened to both episodes, to write a review and many of you went on and wrote reviews on both of our podcasts, which actually really helps us um, in the search rankings on iTunes and helps us get the word out about our podcast, which is important because both of these podcasts are doing really cool things. Agreed. Agreed. That's a great point. <laughs> the more reviews we get, the more people get to listen to them. And so we love that. But we wanted to reward you guys for writing reviews. And so we picked uh, we picked a dual review sort of at random to give a really fun prize pack of like lots of stuff. What's what's in the prize pack, Nicole? Well, I actually forgot. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm just making it up right now because on my end, at least you can make up whatever you want to. But, um, you know, I think skirt sport from skirt sports perspective, and you know, I can make this decision because I kind of own the company. um, (laughs) I'm going to give the winner an outfit of her choice. Oh my God. I love that. Well, and I hope, wait, wait, I hope she picks the wonder wool. Oh, Jill, <laughs> she has to, oh my gosh, we'll have to show photos of you wearing it. Oh, I, I'm just, yeah, I can't even, we'll, we'll talk, we're going to talk about that a lot later, but like you guys, the whole wonder wool thing is legit. It is amazing. And I want my entire wardrobe to be made of wonder wool at this point. <laughs> you know, it has, an, it has natural anti-odor too. So you could wear it to work out and then wear it to sleep and be fine. Right. That's good to know. And I noticed that it doesn't stay all sweaty. Like it wicks really fast. Yes. These performance fabrics actually work. Well, so Jill, and what are you giving the winner? 
Oh, yes. Okay. So I, I have like lots of super fun stuff. So two, uh, like a copy of Not Your Average Runner, the book, and a copy of Not Your Average Ru- 5K, both signed by me, the author, um, a Not Your Average Runner headband and some temporary tattoos and some really cool stickers. I had all of the Not Your Average Runner tanks made into stickers. <laughs> so they say like really fun things on them. So um, so you're going to get some stickers and then you're going to get a nice aluminum um, insulated water bottle that says Not Your Average Runner on the side. And then you're going to be like a walking billboard for Jill Angie because you know what though? <laughs> None of us is average. And that's what I love about what you're doing, Jill. Yeah, for cool. sure. All right, we're so all we're going to announce, should we announce the big winner? I think we should. I think we should. Okay, <laughs> that was a drum roll. Was- <laughs> Go ahead, do it. No, do it. Do okay. it, do it. All right, all right. We are giving this amazing prize pack to Jenny C. of Minnesota. And I, we should read the inter- the. Uh, I can't talk today. We should read the reviews that she let's, wrote for us. Let's do it. And the funny thing is, like, Jenny C., we actually don't even have your email or anything because these are reviews. So if you don't ever listen to another podcast episode, you won't get anything. So you have to actually reach out to us. You can find me through Facebook Messenger and Jill as well. Does that work? Yeah. Facebook right. Messenger, definitely. Um, or you can e- I guess you, she could email both of us, too. Oh, that's true. But you then we have to. Sure. Doesn't matter. <laughs> this is totally unscripted. <laughs> I know. Can you tell? Um, so, great. Yeah. So what's yours? Um, she can email me at support at not your average dot com. Oh, good. And she can email me at Nicole at skirt dot com. Easy. And Love that means it. all of you can email me too with any questions anytime. I just might not get back to you right away. Same here. Same here. <laughs> All right. I got to read this this review she wrote for you, Jill, on your Not Your Average Runner podcast, which you should all be listening to because we need to dual share these podcasts more often. Love it. Um, this one is gives you, she actually gave you five stars. Actually, everyone gave you five stars. Um, and you have like 125 reviews, which is so cool. She says, I loved caps, all caps. I loved this one. There were so many good nuggets like fail forward or negative words only have power over us if we attach emotions to them or the wisdom gained by life experiences, not necessarily age. Thank you both for sharing your stories and your wisdom with us. Now, guess what? People don't even need to listen to the episode because she just paraphrased it for them. Oh, but there's so much more in that episode. That's true. It was a good one. It was so, and that was episode number 44, sorry, 47 of Not Your Average Runner. And then I want to read the review for episode 106 of Run This World from Jenny C. Um, She says, wow, powerful. You two have so much wisdom to share. I really love the concept that you get wisdom from life experiences, not necessarily with age, and also to fail forward. Just really thought-provoking and inspiring conversation. Thank you. And again, with the five stars. So thank you, Jenny C. from Minnesota. Um, also, we were very grateful that you put the episode numbers in your review. <laughs> it was very, very helpful for us. <laughs> so you're getting bonus points for being super organized, which um, is something I aspire to be. All right, everyone, over and out from the pop-in. And uh, I look forward to sharing a little more of the work that Jill and I are going to do in the future. Because it's going to be epic. Totally. (laughs) Okay, back 
from the poppin'. That was fun, right? And how cool is Jenny C? I really hope she contacts us because I can't reach her otherwise. Okay, now for the main attraction. Kristen Ryman, today's guest, is a beautiful soul. I knew the minute I met her that she was special in ways I had never known before. It's like she just loves and accepts all people despite their flaws and bullshit and that love and acceptance shines through her physical being into the atmosphere around her. Not to mention, she's really hard to miss. Um, I called her and about five other women from her swim class, the Amazons. They were. They were these like tall, six feet was like the minimum height requirement for some reason. (laughs) Glowing, robust, strong, insanely fast swimmers. They all had really long hair too, I think, like down to the middle of their back. And you just couldn't take your eyes off them. And they just blazed around the pool and campus. Anyway, Kristen is here today, not because she's beautiful and talented, which she is. Um, After college, she did all kinds of stuff, which we'll talk about, and then became an MD. Um, But because of the path her life has taken over the past few years, I'll sum it up right here by saying she recently published her first book called Life After Lyme, Revive Your Inner Rockstar and Achieve a Full Recovery. Yep, she is a Lyme disease survivor, and she barely lived to tell about it. I'm so glad she did live, though, because I just can't imagine a world without her beautiful spirit in it, and I know you won't either after listening. All right, let's bring her on. I cannot believe we are doing this and, and like, reconnecting, which which we've done, like, on and off over the years, but, like, I will never forget when I first walked into that Yale swim team, like first meeting, or at least the locker room for the first time. And I looked around and I was like a highly recruited athlete. And I went to an Ivy League, which is not known for its like incredible athletic programs. But two classes above me was like, the Amazon goddess class of, of all time. There were like six women who were over six feet tall, and each one of them had at least one to two feet of long blonde hair. That's and, accurate. And you were one of them. I was. I might have been two of them. <laughs> That's so true. I do remember immediately being told after our first practice when I was showering that we don't keep our suits on in the shower in college. <laughs> who, said, who said that to you? I swear, I think it was Jen Greer. Wait, is that the tall, the, the breaststroker? Jen Greer, well, she was a sprint freestyle. She was all sorts of good in all sorts of directions, but she oh, yeah. was sprint freestyle and, yes, very strong breaststroker. Yeah. From Germantown, yeah. Yes. Isn't that funny? You know what's so funny about that is that I've recently been talking to my son, who's now at an Ivy League swimming and um, I asked him, you know, what are your locker room norms? Just because that's a fair question. And <laughs> Not prying said, at all. <laughs> he said, we, Mom, we don't get naked. And I was like, what? You don't get <laughs> naked? Like, that's one of the benefits of being a swimmer is you get comfortable with your body because you're naked all the time in the locker room and you're nearly naked in the swimming pool. You may as well be naked, you know. And I was, I was shocked, shocked. Yeah, me too. Like, I wonder why. What's changed? Yeah, I don't know. Well, clearly you got naked a lot and so did I. And you ended up marrying one of our fellow swimmers who was always naked too. 
even when he was not swimming. (laughs) Hi, Greg. (laughs) And you're still married. And like you pumped out four kids and you became a freaking MD and you have such an incredible journey and it doesn't even have to do. We're going to talk about things that have nothing to do with the things I just said even. I know. What a strange lead-in we've been cultivating here. (laughs) (laughs) There's no such thing as strange on the Run This World podcast. Um, But, you know, I think I wanted to kind of start with the fact that you grew up this, like, robust, amazing, athletic, healthy swimmer girl, right? Yes. So give give us a little bit of your background here so people can understand where you started to get a sense for the issues that followed later. Um, so I think you kind of summed it up in terms of what's relevant. I was always, you know, healthy and, you know, my brain worked really well and I got into an Ivy league college and, you know, went there and swam in college and, you know, pushed my body really hard and maybe not as hard as some of the distance swimmers. I might've gotten out early most days, but you know, I was, I was competing at a high level in life and, um, you know, I, I think I probably looking back, I can noticed that I was different in my capacity to, to sort of tolerate, um, you know, like we'd go out drinking and I couldn't maybe drink more than one or two nights in a row. Or if I didn't get enough sleep for a couple nights in a row, I would definitely really feel it the next day. And I, I remember a couple moments in college where I literally couldn't keep my eyes open and it wasn't for lack of sleep necessarily. Like it was really this toxic fatigue that came over me at a couple of of key moments in public, you know, like in the middle of a small seminar, my junior year, for example, where in a, you know, we're sitting around a table and there's a professor and like seven other people. And all of a sudden I literally, my head's going to hit the table or the wall. And I chose the wall behind me, but I couldn't keep my eyes open. And those were all things that I sort of took as, you know, just whatever normal. Um, but looking back, I think I was more susceptible to things like what happened to me later than the average person. So, yeah, I guess so, I can say so that. This is really interesting. You use the word toxic fatigue. I haven't mm-hmm. heard someone say that before. Like, what does that mean to you? Actually, I borrowed that phrase from one of my patients. I thought it was so compelling, and I it definitely you know captured for me what happened those few times. It just it, it almost was like a drug hit me. You know, there was some kind of chemical in my body that wasn't going to let me stay awake. Um, yeah. It's really interesting because I have moments in my life where I feel like gravity is heavier a certain day or at a certain time. And as like functioning adults with children and jobs and things like that, like we can't give in to that most of the time. So we push through it by doing things like drinking a pot of coffee and, you know, like taking, drinking a Red Bull or something like clearly I would say not healthy, but, Mm -hmm. um, we can't necessarily always give into that. So that, that's an interesting point maybe too, is your body forced you to give into that. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. And I, you know, I'm grateful for that at some level because I've seen patients, I've had patients who describe years of pushing past their limit. And, and honestly, like I had a, the first patient I had with chronic fatigue syndrome, I really believe had that as a result of Red Bull for two years on a construction job, just like pounding Red Bull day in and day night to flog himself, to keep him awake, to do this ridiculously hard labor. 
and um, came down with a virus shortly during, you know, during that phase and just never recovered, basically. Wow. So it almost like makes me think about our adrenals, you know, and how we in college, we go for four years. It's swim, party, eat a lot of food, try to stay awake in class, repeat, you know, just mm-hmm. keeps going and you push through and you push through. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I mean, is there something to like your adrenal fatigue building up over all these years? Um, quite possibly. I mean, I'm not sure how I feel about adrenal fatigue as a diagnosis. I definitely see people who are wiped out. Um, I don't tend to do a lot of lab testing to look at the adrenal glands. And so I tend to treat sort of on a clinical basis based on history and and what people can do functionally. But I do see people who are just tapped out. You know, I also I also ended up becoming an acupuncturist in residency. And one of the things that really resonates with me is this concept of depleted chi or depleted jing, which is kind of your life force that you're born with, your jing. Um, I remember when I took the class, uh, Joseph Helms, who was the instructor, had me up on stage at one point and heard, you know, I, I don't know how I got up on the stage as a demo in this class of 200 people, but, you know, walking through my story and describing kind of the various stages in my life that might have led to what he was calling at that point, you know, on track for a protoplasmic catastrophe or something, <laughs> you know, was, was that I'd been in China for two years and had, you know, been in cold weather and a very damp weather in Shanghai and, and Hunan province and, you know, hadn't really dressed warmly enough. And he sort of shook his head and clicked his tongue and said, well, you know, this is where you pissed your jing away. And I think it's the same concept, right? Like we can deplete ourselves over time. And whether you call it chi or jing or adrenal fatigue, I think there's really something to the fact that, you know, we can't keep flogging ourselves and not expect to pay for it. Oh my gosh, you are so right. So, so many people are listening right now and shaking their heads like, yep, my jing is on the way out. I got it. <laughs> so like, what are the signs that people have if they're shaking their head a little bit? What might people be experiencing? Well, I think it comes back to some just basic clues. You know, are you able to sleep? Often when we put ourselves to bed too late because we're flogging ourselves, we are sort of revved up as opposed to tired mentally. Um, you know, we push past our little window of sleepiness. Anyone who's had a child or a baby knows that, you know, every once in a while the baby gets tired and they get this kind of far off look in their eyes and they don't really respond. And you know, if you put them down in the dark right then, they would fall asleep. But if you push past that, you know, even a few minutes past that, forget it, you know, all bets are off. And it's because they've released adrenaline and their body is now flogging them to stay awake. Um, And I think if we can respect our body's clues, you know, if you're tired at seven o'clock at night, you probably should go down in the dark and lie down and try to go to sleep. And you might actually sleep all night. Whereas if you push past and you go to bed at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock and you've got this adrenaline surging through your body, it's going to be really hard for you to fall asleep. And when you do fall asleep, you know, the adrenaline's half-life is still going to be in your system and you're going to probably wake yourself up with it when you're when you go through the sleep cycle and you're in, you're in the light phase of sleep. So is sleep one of the magic pills that most of us aren't doing right? Absolutely. How I mean, you, think of it this way. Do you do you use an alarm clock? I don't. <laughs> I actually turn You know what's interesting? I mean, we uh, most people I think do, but um 
I turned, I got rid of my clock by my bed because I realized at a certain point that it had a psychological effect on me if I saw the number was getting later. And in my head, I'd be like, now I'm only at six hours and 40 minutes of sleep. So I just turned it off. But yeah. it didn't mean that I'm not getting enough sleep. I'm not getting enough sleep, most likely. Um, so that's interesting, though. So well, do you ask people is, are you using an alarm clock? And if you are, then chances are very good that you're not getting the sleep that your body needs to stay well to maintain itself at its optimum levels. Because the body will wake up when it's done sleeping. So how do you do that if you have a family and kids and you know they need to get up and you need to prep lunches? How do you just sort of listen to your own natural rhythms? Well, I think you can't do it in a vacuum. You know, you live in a system and everyone has their their roles and their responsibilities. But I think it's possible to experiment with going to bed earlier, you know, to say, well, you know what, the dishes are in the sink, but, you know, nobody's bleeding out and everyone's now in bed and I'm going to go to sleep because that's what really needs to happen for this household to function better tomorrow and see what happens. I recommend people start sort of on a weekend, you know, when they really don't have anything in the morning, close the shades, make sure there's no no alarm clocks, no dog's going to run in and lick your face and just see how long you sleep before you wake up. If you sleep 10 hours, your body needs 10 hours. So that means you go to bed in enough time to wake up 10 hours later without an alarm clock. That is amazing. And that is going to be our challenge for people who are listening. Let's work on this sleep thing. How do you feel about screens? Is that whole theory that like watching screens too close to bed gonna disrupt your sleep? I think it's not a theory. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that blue light is disruptive. And I think that if people are looking at screens after dinner, they're stimulating their brains in ways that, you know, our brains did not evolve to be stimulated after dinner. You know, the lights were going down, the sun was going down, the pineal gland starts secreting a little melatonin, everything sort of gets primed for sleep. But if we, you know, jack ourselves up with, you know, some sort of high energy activity or looking at a screen or, you know, basically giving the brain candy in that way, it's going to kind of flog itself awake. I love this word flog. You keep using it. <laughs> I know, right? I don't know why it's coming through me so much. <laughs> we need to honor it today. We are going to flog this interview to death. I love it. Right. Well, We're going to so- call it a flog cast. <laughs> <laughs> so we have already hit on uh, so many things. Something that stands out to me is like you mentioned, you have this man child who's already at freaking, you know, Ivy league swimming. And by the way, he is a, a beast and amazing and beautiful and taller than both of you, I think. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. gosh. And, um, an incredible swimmer, which of course your children are going to be so talented because you and Greg are both so talented in so many ways. But then you also mentioned this like two year stint in China. And at some point along the way you went to med school. So let's take people a little bit, uh, through the journey that happened after college. Okay. Let, let's start there. So you graduate. I'm still a junior now. Without you, my little security blanket, like most amazing person I'd ever met to that point in my life. Stop. True. Um, oh. And you went on. And what happened next? So I went to China for two years. And um, I did that really because I didn't have a plan. I didn't, I hadn't graduated with a plan of what to do after college. You know, Yale has this very old program called Yale in China. 
and they send every senior or every graduating, I guess every junior ready to be senior, a little invitation to apply. And I remember the day I got that little note in my mailbox and I opened it up and I thought, oh, I'm going to China next year. That's my plan. I, that's my, that's, <laughs> thank you, universe. You've delivered me a plan. And fortunately, when I interviewed with them, they did not accept me for the program. Why? Because because I think it's because when they asked, they seemed all excited and they were kind of ready to go. And they said, oh, one more question. Are you um, available this summer to go to Middlebury and learn Chinese? And I said, oh, yeah, about that. I'm actually driving across country with my boyfriend for six weeks. And they sort of exchanged looks. And I did not get the job. However, they did give me an alternate position. So I went over there on my own as an alternate and landed in a medical school in Shanghai and learned Chinese that year. And so the next year when they needed to fill a, vac- a vacancy in one of their spots, their two-year spots, um, one woman had become depressed and needed to go be evacuated home. And so I took her spot. And at that point, I think they were convinced I was committed to learning the language. So I got to stay for the second year. So six foot tall, long blonde hair, Amazon goddess lands in China, uh, Shanghai, one of the biggest cities in the world. Right, only eleven million people. Then I think oh, I've I've been there just through uh, skirt sports work and exploring the manufacturing world out in Asia, but it was overwhelming, and um and a six foot tall Amazon goddess with long blonde hair definitely stands out. <laughs> so it was a bit of a social experiment, I think. Oh yeah, I could totally yeah. see that. And you speaking uh, Mandarin? You learned Mandarin. I learned it while I was there, yeah. But the first thing I learned was how to say my height in centimeters. Because <laughs> everybody asked. Because <laughs> it's what was it's what was needed. It was a practical approach to learning a language. Oh my gosh! Of course, I mean it's the first like speaking point. Um, so this is really cool because now I'm understanding why you have such like a, a holistic East Western, you know, mixed approach to medicine and health. Yeah. Wow. So what'd you, what'd you learn over there? Oh gosh. Well, um, the first thing I learned was that I would not find a husband there, which was the first thing people decided to tell me when they met me, you know, you're not going to be able to find a tall enough husband. (laughs) There's some very tall Chinese people. That is true. They weren't in Shanghai, huh? They just, they weren't as common as, you know, as here you might find them. But yeah, for sure. <laughs> because you have to have a height requirement for a husband. So had you and Greg broken up? No, we sort of decided to stay together, but you know, have our own experiences in different parts of the world. He was in Texas getting his doing his first year of a graduate program in philosophy. Mm-hmm. And the second year he was able to kind of take a year off from that, come to China and I got him a job down the street from me in my second place of work. And that was a really fun year too. We got to explore China together. But in terms of what I learned, I think, you know, I learned a lot. I learned Chinese. I learned really how to be independent in the world. Um, to some extent, I, I think the biggest take home though, for me was I learned that I can kind of be anything I want to be. You know, something about living in a culture that was so different from mine, learning a you know, language with, that was more akin to math than to any of the languages I'd studied and kind of not having any of my normal points of reference really helped me to strip away all those preconceived notions about who I was and what I was supposed to be. And I really did come home a clean slate. I don't think I would be a doctor had I not gone to China. 
Wow. So this is a big part of your journey. Yeah. Huge. Okay. So you got back to the States and I'm assuming Greg came with you. Yeah, I brought him back. <laughs> he brought me back. <laughs> and, and this happened later on too. Um, and so then did you apply to med school at that point? Well, not yet because I had not decided to be a doctor in that, you know, until I really, actually it was driving across, it was driving across country again with my boyfriend who's now my husband, but you know, driving from Pennsylvania to Texas where he was going to grad school and I was going to who knows what. I had no job. I had no plan. I had no idea what I was going to do. And during that car ride in his little Toyota Corolla, I remember driving through Texas and saying, I just don't even know like what jobs there are. I feel like my brain has been wiped clean of all my points of reference. And he said, well, make a list of the jobs that you know about. And I said out loud, well, doctor. And he goes, go to med school. And it was like, it was an epiphany. I mean, I haven't had one since. I never had one before, but I, it was as if everything was clear in my mind all at once. And I was like, oh, exactly. That's who I'm, that's who I'm meant to be. That will make the best use of all of my gifts and allow me to serve my fellow man in all the ways that will make the most sense. That's what I'm doing. Wow. And it was somebody else who had to sort of point that out to you. Yeah. It's, it's hard because we can't see those things that are so clear about ourselves sometimes. Yeah, I think it, well, life's a team sport, right? It's really helpful to have people who love you and, and understand you totally. kind of reflect things back. So you mentioned these gifts that you have. What are they? Um, I think I'm a good listener. I think I have a big heart, a heart that wants to be of use and help people find their own answers and their own power. Um, I wouldn't have articulated this in that way then. I think what I wanted to do was help people, and I thought I would be a good listener. But, you know, there's something about um, being able to bear witness to suffering that I probably couldn't have named as such, but is a big part of what I do and what I do well. You know, what I would say um, from the minute I met you was these words come to mind, like generosity uh, in all ways, like through just being you in the world, a non-judgmental approach, like anyone could be themselves around you, which leads to this word being comfortable in your presence. Mm. I mean, these are incredible. Like those are really special things. And, and I, I can see how it led you down this path, but it's interesting because being an MD is so like clinical. I know. And I'd had zero math or science. I mean, you can say a lot of great things about Yale. And one of the things I thought was great at the time was that there was no like strict science requirement. But in the end, it kind of screwed me because I had to go back to school and do all that stuff. Like I'd had nothing besides, you know, a semester of calculus and a course in the Native American experience. I mean, that was kind of my math and science requirement somehow. I didn't even take any math. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty easy to weasel out of it. <laughs> wow. Okay. So um, you ended up becoming an OB-GYN, right? Well, no. I ended oh. up becoming a family doc oh. who delivered babies for a while. Got so it. Not something I knew was possible when I went, you know, when I sort of went into the pre-med, you know, onto that track. And I had to go back to school to get all those courses, obviously. And I did that in Texas for a few years. But at the time, I thought I would be an OB-GYN. 
when I actually did my OB-GYN rotation, I really found it toxic. You know, I just felt like, wow, there's so much joy here that's just not, not even getting acknowledged. And it's all about sort of stress and hierarchy and, you know, people abusing each other. And it felt like the wrong culture for me as a specialty. Yeah, I could see that. And how cool that you were able to like see through that and listen to that and, and change direction. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, and luckily I had a really great mentor. Um, Erica Schillinger was my mentor and good friend all through um, the second part of medical school. Actually, we had babies at the same time. I met her on a walk, like a Sierra mom's hike. We each had like five month old babies in our backpacks and became good friends with her before I knew she was going to be one of my um, preceptors and, you know, later colleagues. But one of my pivotal moments in medical school was maybe halfway through my first clinical year. And I'd followed her patients for about nine months in her outpatient clinic. And she called me one night to come, um, you know, be at the birth with one of the patients that we'd followed. And I, you know, biked into campus and met her there and saw, you know, you know, met this woman and, and helped, you know, labor with her and, you know, provided, you know, hands on support. And then, you know, you know, basically assisted her in delivering her baby. And then I got to help and put her baby to the breast and teach her how to breastfeed and be with them for that. And it just felt like such a beautiful kind of full circle experience. And I realized in that moment, this is what I want to do. I want to be a family doctor and take care of the whole family because I don't want to concede any of this. Wow. Wow. I love it. I wish you lived here. You could be my family doctor. I don't really have a family doctor. We need a family doctor. Yeah, they're, they're pretty good sorts. I do. I don't do a whole lot of straight family practice anymore just because the path I'm on now, the path that kind of, you know, Lyme led me to has taken me down a really different path. And, um, but I do miss that kind of whole family, whole systems, you know, get to know everyone in the family and take care of everyone over time. That's a really beautiful model, I think. Well, we can kind of I think see and understand your journey to what you were meant to do and what fulfills you in this life. And along the way, having listened to your heart and creating a beautiful family. And But at some point, something happened. And I want to segue to this world of sort of undiagnosed and chronic illness that you've stumbled into. So maybe you could, yeah, start with, you know, how, how this world presented itself to you. Mm. So I was probably in my first year of being an attending, which is the job that you take after you're a resident. And I was working in the tr- hospital that had trained me and in a small inner city clinic that was kind of working hard to make itself into a federally funded, federally qualified health center. So like a community health center. But basically, like a lot of hours, a lot of stress, a lot of turnover in the staff, a lot of, um, you know, there was some toxicity, you know, among various people in the building. But um, I was doing my best to kind of do my job and put my head down and love my patients and work hard. Um, And that was going on probably in 2011. And about that time, I had a patient who came and saw me and she was new. She was in her 50s. She was debilitated but in a kind of invisible way. Like she looked fine. She looked completely normal. All of her labs were perfectly normal. Um, And yet she said, I can't think. I can't function. I'm exhausted. I'm terrified intermittently. I'm panicky. This is all new for me. You know, I, I can't hold my urine on days and it's bizarre. All these tests have been done. They're all negative. I'm convinced that I have chronic Lyme 
and Babesia and Bartonella, which are co-infections of Lyme. And I'm, I've learned about this on the internet and I'm sure I'm right. And I, I really need my doctor. If you're going to be my doctor, like I need you to understand this and I need you to read this. And she passed me like a stack of internet research and, um, something really powerful happened in that moment. You know, like I could, I could see the train of people who had just dismissed her and I knew right away that I wasn't going to be one of those people. And I took the internet research and I had a plane to get on in a few days and I took it with me and I read all that research and, you know, it ranged from sort of blog posts to, you know, long essays on herbs for Lyme and different, different articles about how Lyme is um, misdiagnosed and missed and all the different forms Lyme can take. And it was just slowly and surely blowing my mind as I read this because you know, some of the things were just personal accounts, but other things were, you know, talking about published papers and, you know, evidence in published papers that Lyme persists in dogs despite many months of doxycycline or Lyme persists in a knee joint despite a couple years of ceftriaxone IV and you can still find it. And it was sort of all these little pieces of unsolved mysteries that I sort of collected subconsciously about Lyme were kind of clicking into place and going, oh, this would explain that, this would explain that. And one of the pieces that was clicking into place was, oh, does this explain why, why I'm exhausted every single morning? I mean, I had sort of looked at the you know, fact that I was nursing my newborn for a year um, at age you know, 41, and that was enough reason for me to feel this bad, but I was also remembering that I'd pulled a tick off myself you know, seven or eight years before and had a bullseye rash and treated it with Doxy for a month but what I was learning was that, you know, that might not have gotten it all and probably, in fact, didn't get it all. And that Lyme, if your immune system was down, could reactivate. Wow. Okay. So wait, why didn't you already know about Lyme? You were, you went through medical school for years and you did all the training. Like, is this just an ignored condition? I wouldn't say it's ignored, but I would say that it's mistaught and misrepresented. And I think to their credit, those who taught me, I mean, I went to Stanford and I remember sitting there listening to the lecture in microbiology on Lyme disease. And that was sort of where the unsolved mystery, one of them got sort of stowed away because as they were talking about it, you know, talking about sort of life cycle and what drugs to use. And then 20% of people might also end up with cardiac problems or chronic joint pain or, you know, long-term effects. And I was thinking, well, how, what's different about those people? Um, not knowing that I was actually one of those 20% or would be, you know, um, one of the people susceptible to long-term problems. But I remember thinking, well, clearly the answer isn't just four weeks of doxycycline if 20% of people aren't going to be served by that. Like there's got to be some other answer, but we weren't being taught other protocols or approaches. So in my mind, I was like, well, it seems to me if you get a tick bite and you think it's Lyme, you should treat it regardless of whether you get a rash because only 30% to 50% of people will get a rash. So why not just cover your bases? And that's what I had done the first time I had a tick bite and a rash, which was right after I moved back to Pennsylvania. I basically called my doctor, said, you've got to treat me. I'm taking it for 28 days. I don't care if I have any symptoms or a positive test. I'm just covering my bases. So was this patient kind of your like ground zero eye opener? Yeah. Absolutely. I call her in my book, I call her my angel patient because she really, she really came into my life and opened up a whole new world of learning and, um, you know, 
and an avenue that if I did, hadn't sort of already gone down it, I'm not sure what I would have done when I actually got really, really sick a few months later. So when you were reading this um, stack of papers and the light bulbs were going off, were you feeling like, oh my gosh, I missed this in tons of patients? Totally. Totally. Oh. It was Our, like, was there a guilt feeling? Did you ever reach oh, out to any of them or could you? I mean, I mean, it was too many people. It was like, you know, pretty much everyone who I'd sort of been like, oh, well, you can't have Lyme because your test was negative or you can't have Lyme because you've already been treated. I mean, those are kind of the party lines. And they're party lines that come straight from the Infectious Disease Society of America, which is sort of the, you know, standard, you know, professional organization for the infectious disease docs that everyone else, you know, believes and kowtows to because that's that's their organization, right? And so what I started doing was calling specialists in my hospital system and saying, listen, I, and of course, so, because of course, at that point, the universe just starts sending me everyone with Lyme, right? And so I'm doing all these Lyme tests and Western blots, and I'm finding some Lyme, and I'm finding some Babesia, and I'm calling the infectious disease people and saying, hey, listen, I have a patient um, in whom I have a diagnosis of Lyme, and they would cut me off and in a very aggressive voice say, well, on what basis are you making that diagnosis? Wow. I mean, it was bizarre. It was just, I was like, oh, there's something else going on here. You <laughs> Besides know, me curbsiding my colleague. This is so crazy. When when we uh, reconnected as you were, you know, preparing your book and we, we were talking a bit about this a few months ago, I met a young man up in Colorado in the mountains who was recovering from an undiagnosed, you know, Lyme condition and no, they wouldn't diagnose it as Lyme because he, this is their theory. Um, he knows it is. He just, through all the reasons that your first patient knew and no one would agree or tell her that. Um, but his thought was that we don't have Lyme in Colorado and he got a tick bite in Colorado and got the bullseye looking back. Um, but they won't, they won't uh, like approve that diagnosis because they don't want it to be known that there might be Lyme in Colorado. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's, it's crazy. And I don't, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think doctors are motivated out of anything other than just wanting to do the right thing. But I also don't think they have time to read the literature or to, to really learn about how this is a very politicized illness. And there are two guidelines. And one set of guidelines was written by people who refuse to believe that there is a chronic form of Lyme. Um, and the other set of guidelines is written by people who see all the Lyme patients, you know, and help them get well. So it's wow. unfortunate. I, I learned there was one set of guidelines and not the guidelines I use now. So let's talk about what happened to you. So it was like many years prior, you, you were, you had a tick bite, you pulled it off, you treated mm -hmm. yourself and you just say doxy for like people who don't know, I'm assuming that's an antibiotic that they use, right? Yeah, sorry, doxycycline. Um, and I took it for, I took it twice a day for 28 days, which was sort of above and beyond what anyone would have told me to do, given that um, I didn't really get, I didn't have any symptoms that I can recall. I felt fine. Um, but in my mind, I was sort of casting a really wide conservative net around the whole thing and, you know, felt fine and went on with my life. Um, and then, you know, a few years later, I was, you know, halfway into this, this or halfway into the first year of my faculty job that I mentioned was very, very stressful. I'd been nursing Xavier, my number four, all year. Um, waking up every morning like I felt like a truck had hit me. I mean, I was like, oh, my God, maybe I have to learn about fibromyalgia now for real because this is like 
legit pain and and suffering and um then i then i i remember one night this was this was like in the midst of learning about all this for this patient of mine and learning all this that was sort of fueling my own fear and Malin came into the as my oldest came into the room one night and was like mom like why are you freaking out why are you like so afraid and i i realized i'd been like looking over the computer for hours like reading and learning and trying to find papers and I realized in that moment, oh my God, I am. I'm so afraid. This is so unlike me. Maybe I just need another tick bite to like, you know, give me a rash and convince me to wean my baby and get on doxycycline again and just take care of this thing. Cause I'm so afraid it's like lurking in there and I'm passing in the breast milk because you can find it in breast milk and you can find it in semen and you can find it in placentas of miscarried babies. And I was freaking out. And three days later, I pulled a tick off my butt while I was nursing in the Enough, night. You got what you asked for? <laughs> I got what I asked for. Wow. Wow. So maybe wow. this is one of my lessons number one. <laughs> Be really careful with your words. And um, yeah, I got what I asked for. But you know, in a sense, it really helped clarify things for me. So I was like, okay, that's it. I'm weaning the kid. I'm getting on some antibiotics and I'm going to do this thing right. And at the time, that's what I believed was doing it right. You know, you get on double dose of doxycycline and you take it for as long as you have symptoms and then you take it for another six weeks because that'll capture a couple life cycles of the spirochete, which causes Lyme, and you want to make sure you've gotten it and knocked it back as far as it can go. And I did that. And what happened? Well, I got really sick for, for three months. I was like, sleeping 12 or 13 hours. I was like shaking chills and fevers in my bed. I couldn't pick up my kid because my thumb hurt so badly. My face had this crazy zingy zingy feeling that was nerve pain. You know, my big toe hurt. I had just, and it was, it was debilitating. It was like a really, really bad flu for three, three and a half months. So this happened while you were on Doxy? This happened while I was on Doxy. And that's actually pretty common when you when you start to kill the bacterium, it releases toxins, which create a lot of inflammation, and you can feel worse before you feel better. So at that point, were you thinking, I do have Lyme, and was it Lyme from eight years ago, or was it new Lyme? Like, were you all confused? Was your mind even functioning? No, my mind was not functioning. I was in a, I was in a constant fear state, and I was not, my brain was just not working. I mean, I remember going to the going to dinner and looking at the tip and trying to calculate the tip and I couldn't do simple math. I couldn't remember the last number. Like I couldn't hold it in my head long enough to figure out how to subtract the new number I just looked at. Oh my gosh. So here you go from like amazing, robust, healthy, go-getter woman to not being able to function at the most basic levels. Pretty much. It was in three, in three months. It may have happened faster than three months. I mean, I was sick for the for the entire three months. So did you like stop working and were you just bedridden? So somewhat unbelievably, I was still working. Um, and of course, during that time, the universe keeps sending me all these patients who have Lyme. I'm diagnosing it right and left. And the people around me in the clinic are like, can you stop? Like, can you stop doing these tests and calling ID because, you know, we don't really have the capacity for all these patients. And then you put them on doxycycline and they call in and they've got these big Herxheimer reactions, which is 
when you feel worse before you feel better. So I was kind of fumbling along and doing my best, but not functioning at a very high level. And, you know, slowly but surely, I felt better and better. Finally went off the antibiotics. And two weeks later, like to the day, two weeks after I went off the antibiotics, I woke up in the morning with searing right-sided sciatic pain, like a knife going from my right buttock all the way to my foot. That was almost intolerable. And that, that was, I think, the beginning of my real Lyme journey. Oh my gosh. Okay, so it hadn't even really started yet. So what happens next? So for two weeks, I pushed through that, thinking, you know, this is really probably, you know, I've, I've clearly cleared the Lyme. This is probably just you know, me revisiting some old emotional, spiritual trauma from my from my youth, right? Because remember, I had back pain in college. I had a back surgery and a sciatic nerve. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe it was before you got there. Um, but I had I'd had a herniated disc before on the other side, and I figured, oh wow, this is like me, like working through my past wounds, and I need to just sort of like do all my you know tapping and do my spiritual work and like talk to some clairvoyance and talk to the chiropractor who's doing muscle testing. I basically had my feelers out in all these directions. I didn't think it was Lyme initially. And I didn't want to think it was Lyme really. And um, after about two weeks of that pain and kind of working on it in all of those ways, I, I couldn't move. I mean, I was in so much pain, I couldn't go to work. And so I went to the hospital one morning and came home with some Vicodin, you know, some opioids, and some um, some muscle relaxants, and stayed at home for a week in my bed trying to get that well. Well, it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse, and it was really no other symptoms. It was like that pain only, which was very confusing. Like I didn't think that could be Lyme. So after about a week, I um, it was just getting so bad that I couldn't manage. And I woke up on a Saturday and I said to Greg, I have to go to the hospital. I cannot tolerate this pain. You have to take me to the hospital now. And I was admitted and I was in the hospital for a week with intractable pain. Um, it was, it's not a time I really remember because I was on a lot of drugs and I was on a lot of, you know, painkillers and it was very traumatic for my family. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to say about that week, but it was it was a bad, bad episode. My angel patient visited me like every day and brought me books. It was very sweet. Um, a lot of people visited me. I don't remember most of them. I was really out of it. Did your angel patient know what was going on? Yeah, she did. She did know what was going on. She'd been, um, I think she'd been, I forget. I mean, honestly, it's oh, the whole time is such a blur, but she knew I got sick soon after diagnosing her and starting to work with her. And in fact, one of the things that she clued me into were other ways to treat Lyme because she wanted to be on antibiotics when I met her and I started her on some antibiotics and it was just so painful for her to be on antibiotics. She had such a big Herxheimer reaction that she couldn't um, take them. And so she had done a lot of other research and so she came back to me and said, listen, I can't take the antibiotics. Even these baby doses I can't take. It's too intense for me. I need you to learn about this now. And she hands me a brochure for a conference in New York the following weekend or something. And I was like, I'll be going to that. And I went to this conference. It was a Dietrich Klinghart conference. He's sort of the Lyme alternative medicine, um, MD Lyme guru. Um, and I went to his conference and it totally blew my mind. And that was really the path I was in kind of going down at that point. So in the hospital, even though I'm in there with all these drugs and they want to, 
you know, put an epidural injection in my back. I learned enough by that point that I was like, you're not putting steroids in my back unless you're going to triple load me with antibiotics through a pick line for 48 hours. So I don't really reactivate any Lyme in my body from the steroids. It was insanity. I mean, I was like texting all these Lyme doctors. I have no recollection of any of this other than the texts that were on my phone I found later, you know, but basically. Oh, gosh. Oh, God. It was nuts. Oh, my gosh. So was your family? So you have like from a one to was Malin like 13 or something at the time? Yeah. 13 yeah. or 14. Yeah. So kids from one to 13, uh, probably wondering, is mommy dying? Well, yeah. I mean, that's what they said later when I asked them. <laughs> they were pretty, pretty clear about that. Wow. Yeah. But you, you got you released from the hospital. So did it like dissipate a bit? So it was interesting. It, it wasn't behaving like normal pain should behave. I mean, I did end up with a sterile or a um, steroid in my spine, spinal area, epidural. And I ended up going home on a fentanyl patch. And I ended up going home on a bunch of other things. There was muscle relaxant. Plus, I'm taking herbs. I'm taking homeopathy. I'm taking, you know, I'm doing everything. I'm, I've got the whole, everything I've ever learned up to this point, and I'm continuing to learn. I had a spreadsheet, like a Google Doc spreadsheet to keep track of everything that I haven't looked back at, but I know is there. And it's the only way I could keep track of anything because my mind was not with me. You know, I would feel present in the moment. I would have these very great, deep conversations with people. And have and then completely forget everything. It wasn't I wasn't retaining anything. Wow. And wow. Um, yeah. So and then I you know I got home, and I lay in bed for three months. So it didn't get better. No, it didn't get better. Not a not right away. So I went home, and the pain was still there, and the suffering was immense. And um, you know I would go to physical therapy a couple times a week for do water like hot water therapy. But otherwise, I was in my bed. Anything outside of my bed felt unbelievably painful, like 10 out of 10 backstabbing to my foot pain. And lying in my bed felt completely fine. It was completely bizarre. And what I took away from that was, wow, my body really wants to be lying down <laughs> in my bed, preferably, but just lying down. And so I would lie down. If I were out, if I were up, I would hit the deck as soon as I had any shred of pain. I would just go down and lie up with my feet up the wall or with my feet, you know, bent, my knees bent and wait until my back had kind of reset. But initially I was just in my bed. Wow. So were you like aware of the fact that, you know, you, you do have a family and like the world's going on around you or were you just truly in your own world of pain and suffering? I was completely in my own world of pain and suffering. My kids would visit me. You know, they would come up and lie in the bed with me, and I would read them a book. Um, you know, Greg would bring meals up to me. But I was really out of it. I mean, I was really checked out. And everybody kind of did their, you know, went on with their lives, but, you know, in a diminished way. Greg took care of everybody. You know, he was coaching a couple basketball teams. He was taking the kids everywhere. You know, it he was working a full-time job. You know, I don't even know how he did it. I'm not sure he knows how he did it. You know, he just buckled in and did it. Did you snap out of this one day? What, what brought you out of it? So I, I had been, I had been talking to some healers and some people 
some farmers, some healers, some people who wanted to live in an intentional community in the Lehigh Valley for about, um, you know, there'd been some conversations about what can we do together. And I had, before I went down, I'd organized a meeting, you know, months prior and the meeting came up and sometime in April or May. And I showed up at this meeting. I couldn't get there. Obviously I was on all these drugs. I had to have my father-in-law drive me to this meeting. But it was at this woman's office. She was a homeopath, family doctor, and there were several people there. There was a massage therapist and a Himalayan singing bowl therapist and different kinds of healers who were getting together to talk about what could be possible to kind of recreate some sort of holistic health care in the Lehigh Valley. And I was not in the headspace I had been when I set the meeting up, obviously. But I showed up and we had this meeting and everyone at the end went around and said, you know, it'd be great if we could share what we know and, you know, get to know each other's tools. And, hey, I'll offer to give Himalayan singing bowls to, you know, therapy to anyone or I'll offer to do this zero body balancing thing and I'll offer to do some homeopathy. And it came to me and I just felt like the wind moved through me, like I felt like a shell of a person. And I said, I have nothing. I have nothing to offer any of you other than I will receive I offer to receive. And the homeopath said, all right, come by my office tomorrow at four. So I did. I went to her office. I guess I got another ride. And I told her this whole story. And at the end of it, she's, and we did some stuff, you know, I can't really remember. We did some, you know, visualization and there might've been a bird in my mind and we threw something into a fire, you know, all kind of in my visualization. And at the end she said, Hey, great job. You did the good work. You figured out what your remedy is. I'm going to go make it for you. So she like bustles off to her kitchen and like whips up some homeopathy in her back room. And I just lay in her couch and I, I really felt like nothing. I felt like nothing. And when she got back, she said, here's your homeopathy. Text me tomorrow. Let me know how your back pain is. And I was like, oh, my pain, like my pain isn't even the worst of it. And she goes, what's the worst of it? I said, I feel like I'm dying. I feel like my body is is trying to die and I am making myself breathe every few seconds to keep it alive, but it doesn't want to be here. And she goes, wow. And I said, yeah. And what I hadn't told her was that, you know, a few nights before I'd been to um, Easter Easter celebration at Greg's parents' house. And it was like the first time I'd left the house for anything other than therapy in a couple of months. And I couldn't even be with the family. I just needed to lie in their, her mom, you know, Greg's mom and dad's bed and cry and shake and, you know, die. I felt like I was dying. I got up and I looked in my, I looked in the mirror on my way out and I was like, Oh my God, there's my dying mother. You know, I looked just like my mother when she was dying, totally gaunt and, you know, sallow and dead and she had died on Easter Sunday at age 42 which was how old I was going to be that year and I was like wow that's interesting you know and I also I hadn't told her that like two nights before I'd come down for dinner and Greg was like yay mommy's down at dinner and I was like what are you what are you talking about and he goes what are you talking about you haven't been downstairs for a meal in a month and I was like holy 
pro. You guys must have thought mommy was upstairs in her bed dying or something, kind of like making light of it, right? And they all nodded and looked down at their plates. Oh I was like, hold on, come on, raise your hand if you really think mommy was up dying in her bed. And every single person except for Baxter raised their hand and looked down at their plate. And I realized in that moment that like, even though I decided long ago that I wasn't going to follow my mom and her path, like I had done it. Like I'd pretty much done it. And my family was processing my death. Oh my gosh, this is so heavy. <laughs> you can't see me, but I'm definitely, uh, there's some tears rolling over here. I'm just so grateful yeah. that it turned, that your path turned. Mm. You and Malin both, I told Malin this story, you know, a couple years after it happened, and he cried too, and he was like, how could you be so selfish? <laughs> and I was like, it didn't feel, it didn't feel like, you know, well, I mean, so the, the rest of the story is like this. So I told her that. I told Melinda that, and she said, okay then. So which is it? Are you trying to live? Or are you trying to die? Because it makes every bit of difference in terms of how I support you on this on this journey. And your mom chose her path. And you can choose yours. But text me tomorrow and let me know what your choice is. Wow. I mean, we really have that power? I don't know. But I will tell you this. I got in the car with Greg, who picked me up. I told him the story. And he said, um, do me a favor and text me as well. <laughs> I love Greg so much. Poor man. The poor man who'd done everything for three months and like saw his wife withering away and 30 pounds down. I mean, 30 pounds down, Nicole. Oh like, my God. I'm not talking about from my beefy, like, you know, robust like, swimmer, swimming, beer drinking swimmer like, girl self. It's like 30 pounds down from pretty svelte and it wasn't pretty. And you know, text me tomorrow. And so I went, I went home and I lay in my bed, which was as my custom was. And I, I thought, God, I don't even know how to make a decision like that. Like, I don't even know. It was not, there was like no emotion. I was just like, I'm not sure what to do or how to think about this. And I said, well, how do you make any decision, Clegg? Like, what do you do? Well, you think about the path you want to be on and you imagine what you'll feel. And as soon as you feel, you'll know. So I said, okay, fine. I'm, 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 I'm dying. And there was like no emotion. I was like, huh, well, you know, it turns out there'll be no emotion probably for anyone. Like everyone's processed it already. They're doing just fine. Like my work continues without me, without me. My family has been fine without me. You know, they all know how to use a Ouija board. We'll be in contact on birthdays. It'll be fine. <laughs> and there was no emotion. It was bizarre. It was, I, was, I remember feeling like a total outsider to my process. I was like, interesting, no emotion. What about the other path? And I thought, well, I could live. And again, there was like no emotion. But what I did have was a very clear, loud, internal awareness that said, okay, fine. But if you're living, you're not living for any bullshit. You're not living for any fear-based anything. Like you're not going to be afraid of Lyme anymore. You're not going to be afraid of dying or live. You're not going to, none of that. You're not going to be afraid of what kind of doctor you're becoming. Because believe me, the kind of doctor, I, I mean, I'm sort of known as the witch doctor, you know, among my kids' friends. Like I do a lot of things that I wasn't trained in in medical school because I found them to work and be safe and all those things. But like that didn't feel so comfortable initially, right? 
But this voice was like, yeah, if you're staying, you're staying for jumping on trampolines, you're staying for bliss, you're staying for love, you're going to heal the planet, you're going to heal yourself, and you're, there's going to be nothing crappy about it. So make your choice. What'd you choose? Well, nothing. In that moment, I chose to go to sleep. I was like, I don't really know. Yeah, I'm going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I woke up in the morning and I was like, okay, there's my pain. All right, what's my choice? And I went down both paths in my mind again, and I still had no emotion. I was like, wow, how am I going to make this? this? And all of a sudden, I realized I was walking downstairs. Not just downstairs, but I was walking to the basement where you have an endless pool, and I was getting in the pool. I don't even know how I got in that pool, Nicole, because it's super sketchy and not to code. Like, There's not even a, like an easy way to get into it, but somehow I was suddenly in that pool, and I was swimming. And I was like, whoa. And I got up, and I had breakfast in the kitchen, and I was like, that's interesting. Then I got on my little Lanta bus and I, you know, bopped around town for a half an hour to go half a mile to my therapy because, of course, I wasn't driving. And I got out of my therapy and got back on the Lanta bus, came home. And then I went outside of the Lanta bus. I didn't go straight to my bed. I went into the garden and I sat in the garden and I realized that the red bud was blooming. And I was like, wow, red bud's blooming. Oh, my God, it's spring. Oh, my God. The last time I was out in the garden was like fall when I got a tick bite. This is really crazy. And at that moment, Melinda texted me and she's like, well, what do you got? And I was like, well, I don't really know because this is not how I normally make my decisions, but it appears to me that my body is choosing life because this is not how dying people behave. And she wrote back, great, good to know. Keep me posted. <laughs> and, I, and I went into side and I lived out the rest of my day and I got in bed that night and I was like, Oh, bed. Hello, stranger. I've been cheating on you all day with life. <laughs> and I will tell you that was how my days went on for months and months. It was like every morning, what's it going to, Oh, here I am. I'm up. Not a thought, not a feeling. My body just was like, this is what we're doing. And the pain had not changed one bit, but the suffering was completely gone. Wow. Yeah. I never thought about that dividing line. Very different beasts. And I, I don't even know how to describe them other than to say that I wasn't, you know, my brow wasn't furrowed anymore. I wasn't confused or afraid. I was just like, oh, there's pain. I'm going to drop to the floor and put my legs up for five minutes. Oh, I'm in the grocery store. Guess I'm still dropping in the floor. Wow. There was no question about it, though. It was There was no, like, you know, second-guessing it or wondering how it looked or wondering what it meant. Like, I really did stop wondering what it meant that my pain was go wasn't gone. I, it was – that part came a little bit later, but the, the suffering was so much more about what I did with it with my head than what yeah. was in my brain. Yeah. It's like I just can see you and feel you coming back to life. You weren't – dead. You weren't gone, but for all practical purposes, you, you were a shell, as you said, and you just started coming back. Yeah. And it was slow. You know, it was, it was, it was probably an 18 to 22 month recovery. And I still had pain at the end of that. But in terms of really getting my mojo back, like it took a long time. I had this experience maybe six months after that, that happened, the part that I just described. And um, a friend of mine, Christiane, had sort of been watching my progress. And at one point she was like, all right, you're stalling out. I'm getting you some help. We're going to do an intervention. You're going to go see this 
shaman dude in Philadelphia. So I went and saw Jason and he did some work. He used sort of an osteopath and a craniosacral guy and he put his hands on my head and he worked with me for like 40 minutes. And at the end of the 40 minutes, he was like, wow. He was like, your fulcrum was like way outside of your body. And I'm like, oh my God. And I don't even know what the heck that means, but that sounds like it's pretty accurate. <laughs> and he's, I was like, so what'd you do? He's like, I put it back. I was like, oh. And then there was a woman outside in his waiting room who was like waiting to speak with me. She was a med student who wanted to come to the, the program that I um, was faculty in and she wanted to meet me. And he, she said, hi, I'm Natalie. And I shook her hand and I said, hi, I'm Kristen. And the second I said my name, I felt like something landed like in my body, something be, something inhabited me that had not been there prior to me saying my name. And I was like, oh, here I am. Like you've been gone, haven't you? <laughs> here you are. It's pretty wild. You know, you, one thing about you that I knew from the moment I met you was that you have always had this ability to listen to yourself, whether you do the right thing with whatever you're hearing, you know, along all these years, you know, we make all kinds of decisions through our lives, whatever, but you've always been in touch with yourself. So to hear that you feel like yourself was not inside yourself. Like <laughs> it's so crazy to me. It was hands down the weirdest experience, the weirdest saga. I mean, it wasn't like a, a you know, punctuated experience. It was this drawn out near death experience that took, you know, months and months and months of time for me to sort of like linger there in limbo. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So at some point, we have to end our interview, but we're not ending it right now, even though we've been going for an hour. Oh, my God. Because I do want to hit on the fact that you have come to a place in your recovery or your journey out of, you know, the, the very lowest point of Lyme to have written a book to inspire and encourage other people that there is life beyond. So yeah. let's talk about that. Like, what's this book about and how can it help people and where can they get it? Well, the book is basically my answer to all the people who call me every week who say, Dr. Ryman, I'd like to come see you as a patient. And I say, oh, I haven't figured out how to clone myself yet. So I'm not yet taking new patients because my practice is full. And I, you know, part of my own recovery requires that I don't see 20 patients a day. You know, I need to get my sleep and get my work done before my kids come home so I can be present for my kids. And so my own boundary setting and new capacity for listening to my needs and honoring them, you know, as part of my maintenance is to not, you know, work in a place where I have to see 20 people a day. And so I don't get to see all those people and I, and I feel for them. I mean, they're, they're struggling and they don't have answers. And I really wanted to, to put it all in one place so that people who can't get in to see me or whoever else, you know, all over the world can have a place to go and have an encouraging, um, easy to read, step-by-step, -step, holistic Lyme recovery manual, basically. So this is like, uh, how long did it take to write? Six months. I love that it came from also a place of self-preservation. You're like, I want to help others, but if you were to put yourself out there helping everyone else, you could literally go back down a black hole yourself and deplete yourself again. Yeah. Wow. 
So uh, so where can people get it? Because I actually have quite a few people who I know are going to need this book. Mm, well, it's online. So part of the process of writing the book was I had to sort of, you know, figure out how to create a website and how to, you know, get a Facebook, you know, basically put something out there in the world because it's an ebook. So I had to have an e-platform. So I have a website now. It's called kristinreimanmd.com. Um, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-R-E-I-H-M-A-N-M-D. And, um, and we'll, put a, we'll put a link to all of this in the show notes. But yes. Oh, that's possible on the etherwebs. So Isn't that amazing? Talk. I know. It's amazing. And yeah, so they can get it there. It's, it's, um, it's a 200-page ebook. It's got lots of beautiful pictures. One of my former patients designed the book for me. I hired her to create a beautiful product so that people could, you know, look at all my words because there's a lot of words there too. Um, but, you know, it's really, it's half process. You know, a lot of people want the content. They want to know, like, what is the drug to take? What is the, you know, probiotic to take? How many weeks? How many months? Well, Lyme isn't simple, like those are questions for simple problems. Lyme is not simple. If Lyme were simple, we'd all know what to do about it. We'd all do it and be done with it and move on with our lives. Lyme is not in anybody's book simple. Most people call it complicated. Complicated means it's a problem that has maybe multiple simple steps, but you maybe have to be an expert to know how to do them and what they are and what order. A lot of different experts would have different opinions. There might not be a, a one practice or might be several good practices. Lyme's not even complicated for most people who get really, really sick from it. It's complex. Complexity problems are a whole different beast, and they require a willingness to kind of learn how to dance in that process where you don't know all the answers up front, and you may only know them in retrospect, and there's going to be more than one right answer, and you have to sort of learn how to listen to your intuition as you lean towards and lean into and explore different things. So Really, much of my book is about how to be with complexity, how to know how to use a map, you know, in the terrain of complexity, um, so that you don't have crazy Herxheimer's from taking antibiotics, so that you don't um, have missed expectations or, um, you know, just you know, so you don't stick with something too long. It's really about learning a process. And then there's a bunch of information about what sort of things to try as well. Oh my gosh, you're such a gift to so many people, including me and everybody listening. You feel the same way about you, Nicole DeBoom. Well, here's a simple yet complex question. At this point in your life and your journey and everything you've been through, what brings you the most joy today? Hmm. Well, my kids are all at really different ages and stages. And it's hard sometimes to find time with them one-on-one. -on -one. But as I've really tried to carve out different relationships and time and space with them, I can find tremendous joy with inhabiting the same kind of space, headspace, heart space with them. You know, it's different for each kid. So I can't just, I can't claim the most joy from the seven-year-old because then the 12-year-old will feel bad. But each of them has their thing that I think is just the most delightful thing on the planet. And isn't that interesting that it is about being with others, something that you extracted yourself from for so long, like unknowingly, mm -hmm. that in the end brought you back and brings you that joy and that bliss that you talked about staying around for. 
Yeah. Oh, so cool. All right. Well, we are going to finally run run down our <laughs> long and amazing episode here with our final question that I ask everyone who comes on the show, which is this. If you could leave our listeners with one final piece of advice to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Hmm. If at any point in your life you're ever struck down with something that doesn't make sense or that makes you feel alone or confused or like you're crazy because it doesn't match up to what your doctors think, you're not alone. You're not wrong. You're not crazy. Listen to your body. Your body is a really good teacher. I love it. I love and I love you. I love you too. It's so good talking to you. Thank you for doing this. It's a delight to be in your presence, even over the ether webs. <laughs> we'll have to do it in person soon. I cannot wait to meet that incredible family of yours. I know. Same here. All right. I'm back. Uh, what an awesome episode. Kristen is truly one of the brightest lights in this world, and I, for one, am grateful that she didn't let that light go out. I think one of the statements she made, the title of this podcast, is so powerful. Do you want to live or do you want to die? Because it's your choice in the end. And isn't that crazy to think about? And when she, when she said this out loud, it literally took my breath away to realize that we do have a choice every day on so many levels. Do we want to die or do we want to truly live? I will leave you with that today. And please, anyone listening who suffers from Lyme or has even the tiniest inkling that you might have Lyme or, or a different chronic disease or someone you know does, please check out Kristen's book at kristenreimanmd.com. It's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-R-E-I-H-M-A-N. Kristen Ryman. There's like a silent H in there. MD.com. And pass this link along because there is hope when you are at your darkest hour, when you have no idea what is wrong and you think you might be going crazy. Um, when you have absolutely nothing left to give and it's finally time for you to take. It's okay to do that. Don't give up. Keep going. All right, you got that? Okay, friends, that is it for today. And guess what? Now you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout and I'll see you next week. <laughs>